Hey there, CNF buddies. I'm coming at you live from my shiny new digs. New house up in Eugene, and I've got a nice little office I can call my own. Not a office like I had in my last place. A hybrid office closet. No, no. An actual office with a window and lamps. There's no foam on the walls yet, so please pardon the audio, but we're making strides to be the best, and part of that is me shutting the front door and getting the hell out of the way. I still haven't quite figured out how to completely edit myself out of these interviews, but I'm working on it. Don't you worry. Rachel Corbett, she joins me this week for episode 88 of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction, leaders in the world of narrative journalism, essay, memoir, radio, and documentary film where I try and tease out origins, habits, routines, mentors, key influences, so you can apply some of their tools of mastery to your own work. Rachel is a freelance journalist whose work appears in a few rags you might have heard of, The New Yorker, The New York Times, etc. She's also the author of You Must Change Your Life, the story of Rainer Maria Rilke and Auguste Rodin. She is at... Rachel N. Corbett on the Twitters. Rachel hits on some key points about carving out your own niche, how things come easier when you stop trying so hard, listening versus talking, getting away from the work so you can come back refreshed, and the power of being dumb and defeated. Some of us were born this way. Stay tuned to the end of the show for some incentivized calls to action. In the meantime, here's my conversation with the brilliant Rachel Corbett. But uh, certainly before we get to that, uh, something that really struck me in the um, introduction of the book was that you had really no intent on becoming a writer. So um, before we mm. unpack that a little bit, I want to maybe think, uh, ask you, you know, what did you think you were, wanted to be when you were, when you were younger and coming up? When I was young, young, I didn't really know. I, I would say, I, I, I think I wanted to be a doctor, actually. Uh-huh. but I, but I, I did, I didn't, and then I went, it wasn't really until I went to college, um, and I studied like psychology. So, I wasn't really in, in the arts or in, into writing at all. Um, but I, excuse me, um, I, th- I think it was, I wanted to, I thought about maybe going to law school. <laughs> I thought about, beca- I wanted to do some kind of like um, something kind of activist. I wanted to go into maybe uh, like public policy or advocacy or some kind of, I want to work with women. Um, <clears throat> so it was, uh, it, it wasn't until after, quite a while after, uh, you know, until the end of college that I, I ever considered writing. Yeah. And <laughs> what, what was that moment like where you, where you might, you made that pivot where something clicked in your head that was like, Oh, this is the direction I'd rather go in. I had this teacher this professor in college and I was finishing college and she, I was, I was sitting with her and having like a kind of like end of the year meeting and um, she said, you know, she said, what are you going to do now? And I thought, I said, I don't know. I'm thinking about moving away. I, I really just wanted to leave Iowa. And I said, I might just move to Chicago or something or Minneapolis and get a job and figure it out. And she said, well, you're a good writer. Why don't you go to New York? And, um, 
you could you could intern for a magazine or something and you could write for Harper's or the New Yorker or something she said and that was kind of mind-blowing I never thought about that before mm. so I so I I did <laughs> I really had no, I just didn't know what to do I was really aimless so I I did and I I got an internship at this like little like kind of political news kind of women's news website and like and they were great because they paid like nine dollars an hour or something which is amazing for an internship and at the time and then I just stayed in New York I got another internship and then I went to grad school and then you know finally started getting work what was the name of that website it was called women's Mm e-news it's still around it's great actually they just do kind of like it's it's very small. They publish like a couple, maybe like a couple stories a day, just about very global kind of women's health issues, politics um, around the world. And as you, you know, arrive in New York and get this internship, um, what was your experience with you know writing articles, and what what were some of your early, you know, for lack of a better term, like growing pains as you were looking to you know craft craft stories for this uh, for this website. Well, I think I th- at that point it was just figuring out how to not write term papers and how to write journalism, right. you know, because I was, I was right out of school. So it wasn't, I didn't really know. And also I think it was, I think I was still figuring out, um, whether I wanted to be kind of in advocacy or in journalism. I, I didn't really understand the difference at that point. So this was a kind of in between venue because it was, they did real journalism, but it was you know, it had obviously its own kind of political agenda in the sense that it was focused on women and it had, you know, a a kind of progressive view. So I think for me, it was sort of figuring out how to, whether I wanted to really go into maybe like the nonprofit world or really go into journalism and writing, which would mean kind of taking a different, kind of putting my politics in the backseat a bit more, I think. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a uh, kind of a defining moment for me realizing that I kind of had to choose. Um, and I'm happy that I did in the end, I'm happy that I did go the way I, I went, but it was, yeah, I think that was, um, it wasn't immediate, obvious, immediately obvious to me. I think that happens with a lot of young people when they're starting out, you know, they, 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 it's very hard to be a good opinion writer. Mm. Um, and I think it's something you have to really develop and not everyone can go in with a point of view. Yeah. And I think with a lot of, or maybe a misconception with a lot of opinion writing is that there, um, that it is just simply hot takes and that there isn't a whole lot of research or reporting that can go into something that's an opinion based. Um, so some people probably think that they can just go in and just like, just, I don't know, you know, just kind of just be a blowhard in a sense, but like truly great opinion writing actually is founded in superior reporting. And was that your sense that like when you had to develop a a repertorial muscle? Yeah, exactly. Because it, it doesn't read that way. You know, like the best writing of course reads like it's very easy and like, it's like they just had all these facts in their head, you know, and they're just great arguers. But, but of course you realize, you know, when you try to write that way, it doesn't turn out <laughs> so well if you don't do all the, all that, all that research. So that was, I think for me, you know, that's why I went, to, I went to journalism school. Um, and I think it was partially to develop exactly what you're, what you're talking about there. 
something, some kind of, just some kind of support system. I didn't feel good enough as a writer yet, I guess, to mm-hmm. be that, you know, and, and I think that's also why I didn't write fiction because it, it didn't, I didn't feel like I had enough in me alone, <laughs> you know, with just my thoughts. I kind of always needed to draw from the world research. So, and you went yeah. to Colum- Columbia school of journalism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when you when you got it when you got there, what did you feel like were your your strengths and your weaknesses as a budding journalist? So, sort of the same. They're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. I would say one is like I didn't know that you could just basically call people on the phone and they would tell you. You can ask them questions and they'll tell you things and they'll answer you. <laughs> and it's, it's very simple, but um, it's it kind of it gave it really. I lacked that sense of entitlement. I think. And it was really useful for me for that reason. Um, It's something that you maybe not everyone needs to go to journalism school for. But for me, it was kind of powerful just to to realize that you can just um, go places and ask people things and then they'll give it to you. Mm -hmm. And so that that was like, I guess, uh, my weakness going in. But also on the other side of that, I was pretty impressionable and pretty open-minded I you know I kind of it was all kind of uh, amazing to me and so I I think I was really I was a kind of good journalist because I was very receptive and and, and, uh um I didn't have a lot of I was so kind of (laughs) I I mean I was also like 20 at this point so I was really I was really kind of I, I didn't have any you know I really wanted to tell other people stories I didn't have anything I was I didn't have a real agenda um of my own. So I think I was really kind of a sponge in a way that was maybe, maybe useful. Did said, you struggle at first when you were, uh, say interviewing people in power and then they, and having not, not to be adversarial, but to be, uh, to something to pick up that phone and be somewhat forceful and, not combative, but you know, you do have to sometimes push back and that's a weakness I have. I tend to just let people talk and I have a, I have a tendency to just, uh, you know, like let them talk and not really push back much cause I'm just kind of listening. Uh, so I wonder, you know, yeah. where you fell on that and how you developed your sort of your interviewing chops and repertorial chops on, on, on that spectrum. Yeah. I'm the same as you. I think it, it, it's like, it takes, it just, it's pr- just a practice and kind of like nerve to push people on topics though. You know, it can also be, there's something to be said for like, you know, there is some advantage to saying nothing and just letting people go forever. Yeah. Um, eventually they do, they fill the silences, you know, with, with, um, with information and things that they might not otherwise say if you were really kind of directing them so, I mean, I think there's benefits to, to both sides. Yeah, cause um, I, I know, like, I'm just not a, like, a press conference type reporter, interviewer, you know, like, have oh, to, yeah, you have that's to horrible. like, elbow your way in and, or, you know, that kind of, it just doesn't yeah. appeal to my taste. And uh, <laughs> so is that the same case with you? Yeah, it's terrifying. I don't like, I don't like to, you know, do interviews in front of a group of people either. Like, I don't want to, like, publicly, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to just shout my questions over a room or you know that's that's hard or you know under that kind of pressure you know you get one chance or something it's definitely nice to have a conversation with somebody in private what did you gravitate towards i guess as you were 
diving deeper into your grad school studies and like how did your your tastes evolve and change and then and how did you ultimately pick the the course of journalism that you're on now i wish it was a better story but it's it's kind of it was a little bit practical um because when i finished it was 2007 and um it was right when all the media companies were starting to lay off you know Conde Nast was was gutting jobs and and all, you know it was right before the economy collapsed and so um there just wasn't any work and i was like thinking about moving to um like arkansas or like a place like this to go work for one of the all weeklies but then they started closing too so then um i thought well i might as well stick it out in new york and it seemed to be that like the only places that were doing okay or were still hiring were these like like higher end magazines, like luxury magazines and like fashion or lifestyle or art. So I just, I got a job at one of these magazines and started an arts like column there just to kind of make it more pleasant for myself, mm -hmm. you know, to have to have a, it was like a, it was a kind of like a fashion lifestyle, food travel, whatever. Um, and they didn't have much art, like visual art coverage. So I started that, and then I was kind of started freelancing on the side for art magazines. Like I think maybe art news was one of the first ones um, because they were a more journalistic focused one. And they, so they, I, I always just felt like they, there was a need for um, more accessible arts writing. And also for, um, th there were also places like that who it seemed like always needed good writers who were not necessarily um, you know, who could write in, in an accessible way. And also, you know, there was, I think writers were not going that direction because they were intimidated sometimes by art or just by the content. So it seemed like there was a kind of a space that needed to be filled. And I kind of found a little niche for myself in there between kind of art and journalism. Yeah. And were you always drawn to uh the art scene and you felt like that was a niche you could dive into or did you recognize it as a niche and you sort of were like all right well that's some a place where i can take my writing skills and make my own niche yeah it's a little of both i mean it was kind of practical like there was i really did feel like there was like a, a need for, for for somebody um and a kind of opportunity um just professionally but also I don't know what it, what it was. I, I think, you know, my brother is an artist and my dad was a kind of, you know, an amateur artist. And I think it just was something I felt comfortable around. And a lot of my friends have always been artists. So I don't really know why <laughs> it happened, but it was, it was definitely of, uh, you know, I wanted to, I don't, I, I can't, I can't explain exactly why. I think it was both practical and it just felt very natural. I, I don't know what else to say about it. Mm -hmm. I wish I had like a clear, like, you know, trajectory, but I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> and so how does, because it is a, on its surface, it feels hard to get into and hard to understand and people who want to educate themselves more might feel a little insecure that they're going to sound foolish or missing a, a fundamental element of understanding 
art or high art. So how how have you been yeah. able to convey what it is in a in as you said like a very accessible way to a reader that then they might be able to graduate to like higher discussions and and higher discourse when it comes to talking about you know sculpture or painting or or poetry well two things like wh- one is that like when i started doing the journalism uh, it for me it was um like the art world also had like every aspect of a story you would want to have like there was money and power and you have characters with the artists, you have visual things to describe. It was the whole scene was, was, was great for, for any journalist really. But in terms of like actually, um, talking about art, um, and making it, you know, I think, I think, I, I think it's really just, it's a matter of simplifying the process a little bit. Like I think a lot of, writers try to write about the ideas and try to tell you what things mean before they've really looked at at, at something. And so I think it's like, if you, if you really start out and like, and, and really accept that you're kind of dumb when you look at something mm-hmm. and like, and just, just sort of humble yourself in that way, then I, then I think you could be kind of start to, you can start to then describing it, writing about it as a way to just to kind of start to, to look at it or to understand to understand the, you know, whatever the object is. Mm. And then, and then you can, then you can kind of start to draw conclusions. But I think it's, it's, it's really just allowing yourself to kind of be dumb and defeated before when you start <laughs> and then and then moving from there it's story of my <laughs> life rachel just right? dumb and defeated <laughs> me too i don't know it works whatever works <laughs> do you do you recall like the uh, a first sort of illuminating moment when you went from dumb and defeated <laughs> before a piece of of art and then you really start you were were able to unpack it and, and crack its code. Do you, did you have a particular piece and a, and a moment around that? Mm. Oh, that's a hard question. I mean, probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's the same way with poetry, you know, I think when you kind of try to dissect it line by line, you know, so that's, I feel like that's the whole, that's also the whole theme of this book, basically, you know, is, is how to look at something and, let it kind of let it kind of open you up let it kind of change the way you think so i i, I think in terms of i'm trying to think of like a particular example i did it a lot um with rodans you know i spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to describe those mm-hmm. in the process of writing this so going to like the philadelphia museum or something they have there's a uh, rodan museum in philadelphia um Things like uh, the man with the broken nose, or some of his, you know, some of his hand sculptures, um, could spend a lot of time because they're also so, they're so kind of narratively driven. You know, his 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 figures are so, you know, they have so much drama in them that you can really kind of spend a lot of time imagining the stories. Yeah, it's that, kind of amazing I, that uh, that something that is static by its very nature, is actually incredibly kinetic if you just stare at it long. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's like, that was certainly what he really wanted to convey more than anything, probably, is that sense of a kind of, of a movement or a kind of inner turmoil or a 
driving towards something. So that was definitely his project, you know. Yeah. And you know, in the introduction to to the book, you know, you you have this you have this moment where your your mother hands you letters to a young poet. And um what was that ex- exchange like and how was what how illuminating was it to then be reading through that book and then to ultimately realize it was a book that was gifted to your mother at a similar age? Yeah, um, it was like the perfect time to read it. Like that was the perfect age and the perfect circumstance. And I don't know if it would be the same if I were to read it now. Um, it might be too old now. But I think it was – I'd never really heard of it. But it's exactly like, you know, it's like less than 100 pages. It's very short. It's very accessible in its in its way. And I, I was just like – I don't know what it is. It just turns – it's – um. It just makes, like, it's just, it's that for that age where you don't, you, you just, you're, everything is a little bit undecided and you, you have this kind of aimless will towards something. Like, you know, you, you have all this desire, you have all this, like, longing to do something, but you have no direction, like, no place to put it. And it kind of, I just felt like that book um, really puts you at ease. It kind of says it's okay to, um, to not know it's okay to not have answers to not have money to not have the mm-hmm. any 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 um anything to be alone to to be completely uh you know without anything and so i think at that age when you really feel like you're you have nothing figured out it's just the perfect it just it's very comforting um and she she <laughs> she was actually given to it by um she had this boyfriend who was leaving the country like he was taking a job out of the country and he gave her this book when he was leaving Mm -hmm. and um she she had never read it before so she read it then and and she just thought she just thought it was it resonated with her and so she when I was finishing school I think I was just finishing college um and I was just like lost and trying to figure out where to move she gave me that book and I, you know, never expected my mother to give me a book that I would like, <laughs> but it was, no, it was amazing. I read it like four times immediately. And then, and then I kept reading it every maybe couple of years. I still have it. And did you find that, uh, you know, reading that book, it allowed you to give, to cultivate a certain sense of, of patience with your own work and your own career that if you just kind of put in the work that good things would eventually come to you? Yeah. I I mean, it's a weird, I don't know how much like actual practical advice there was in that book. Like, I don't know if I really carried it with me, but it, it was, it's definitely comforting. Like in your, you know, most, direst most dramatic moment like emotional moments (laughs) something very comforting about it but I don't know that I really understood what I mean I think the real lesson of what he says is basically like is basically just to kind of keep working (laughs) and eventually if you're good enough something will come I mean it's not very and, and to be alone and to you know, provide yourself the conditions in which you can work. It's the sort of the main messages of, of letters to the poet. Um, but I think it, it was more like in moments of despair, I would like, we could flip it open and it would, it would tell you that like your despair was exactly the correct 
feeling to have at that moment. So, <laughs> so embrace it. And that was kind of, so it was more like in those kind of moments that I found it to be useful. And, yeah. and Rilke was a, he was starving for a, a mentor, mentorship. But uh, did you find it odd that a poet would seek uh, someone in another discipline as his prime mentor? Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, he had tried to find other writers. He had he had sought out Leo Tolstoy in Russia and um, George Simmel, the, the, the writer and philosopher in Germany. Um, and, of course, his other great mentor is Lou Andreas Salome, the writer. Um, so he had had a lot of literary um, mentors. But... Um, I think that Rodin was very particular for him and the influence was so great because, because it was a different medium and because he really envied sculptors. Um, his wife was also a sculptor and he, he really wanted to make, uh, he, he envied that they could make real objects that sat in the world. And he always felt like, like poetry was a sort of lesser form because it was intangible and he thought that the highest, you know, the highest, like if certain, certain poets could like, like Baudelaire could, um, make sculptural type poems at least. And that would be, that was what he wanted. So he felt like studying sculpture would be the, the closest way to figuring out how to make his poetry have more mm. weight basically, or more structure. Um, he had always had like a, you know, he was kind of coming out of this German romantic style at the time when he was very young and he's, he was much more sentimental. And so he really took a full kind of 180 and started, um, he, he stopped kind of writing about human feelings and started writing about objects in this way, in this attempt to kind of, uh, create objects <laughs> through writing about them. One of one of the questions I always like to ask uh, people I have on the show is like, what other artistic media do you consume to help inform your writing or your or whatever whatever your main vocation is? What thing do you do differently to help inform that? Mm. And it's kind of like, you know, Rilke was doing that by looking at sculptures. Like, how can I make my poetry look like that statue? And yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of a, like maybe a good a good lesson for anyone to maybe look outside your discipline to make your own discipline better. Yeah, exactly. And I think it has to do with just that, that, that process of observation, uh, like less about what, what it is you're looking at and more about that kind of careful study of, of, of how it was made. And then once you really understand how that thing was made step by step, you can kind of that close attention, I think is the best a lesson and you can kind of understand how things are done. And I think that's really what, you know, I think he could have probably done it with music or he could have probably done it with dance. I don't know. You know, it just yeah. happened to be sculpture in this case. Rodin was, was very much, it was, it was like work, always work. So maybe it was mm -hmm. one of those, one of those things where, you know, you, you might idolize or, Oh, you look at someone's finished products and you think it was just, it just came into being, um, but mm -hmm. maybe Rodin like grounded a sense of work ethic and rigor in in Rilke, in a sense, and also like yeah, to us the reader that is just like yeah, you know, ultimately it's 
you just got to sit down and, and, and do the work somehow and, you know, how illustrative that can be. And then the final product will speak for itself, but it is an ugly process that eventually elicits beauty, but you have to be willing to deal with those ugly middles. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's well put. And he, you know, he had like the, his Rodin, this you know, example was like to be like, they were sitting together one day by the pond or something and Rodin plucked a mushroom from the ground and turned it over and he showed Rilke all the the gills of on the underside of the mushroom and he was like, see that? That's good work. Or cathedrals. He really loved the Gothic cathedrals because he felt they were like really a, a you know, a, a testament to the to the power of labor and just, and, and you know, one brick on top of the next for hundreds of years um, that was to him like the highest form of artistic achievement. Um, something that, you know, where, where you can see the, you know, it, it results in something completely different. The transformation happens, um, through kind of a tedious process. And that was certainly what he taught Rilke to do, you know, to start small with a mushroom or a rock or a leaf or whatever and mm-hmm. to describe it. And then, from there, uh, you know, something that the, whatever the magical transformation into art that happens, happens <laughs> naturally kind of along the way. Whereas, you know, that's why you can't start on the other side. You can't start with the meaning or you can't start with the, 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 the artistic message you want to convey. You kind of have to start and then, and then with a simple thing and then you discover it along the way. In your own Thanks. writing and your own practice of writing, did you you know, have similar moments of elucidation of when it was, uh, I don't know, you, you know, whatever influential books that you had and you saw those finished products and, you know, as you were starting to get to, to your own finished products, did you have those, uh, like a moment of, uh, a Eureka moment that, oh yeah, like it was work for them. It's work for me. I just have to endure and persevere and, to, and then I can get to something that's very, that's very fully formed at, at the end, you know, sort of like, you know, Rodan yeah. picking up the mushroom and be like, Look, this is good work, but you know, you got to grind through it. Yeah. Well, that's writing a book, isn't it? Like that's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the whole, I mean, that's, that was my experience all the way kind of, um, you know, just like it was just a process of frustrations. I think, you know, I think of, it just was like going to, I would just be, I would just spend every day in the library and just kind of, you know, you put down all the facts because it's nonfiction. So everything has to be correct and, and careful. And then, and then, and then you, and then you kind of sit with them and then you think, all right, what is, what is this? Have I just written a timeline? Have I written anything of use here? Like, what is this? What do I do with it? And then there's these kind of moments of doubt and frustration. Like maybe this is um, not going anywhere. Maybe there's nothing creative about this at all. And then, and then, you know, it happens. I don't, you know, eventually, you know, that there were plenty of those moments that I don't really know. It's hard to tie them to to anything. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, it's usually when you stop, you know, it's usually when you stop trying so hard, <laughs> Right. Like something happens. Yeah. You um, just got to get unbridled and just let it rip. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or like, it, or it's like kind of when you get, if there's so much about it, that's un, uncreative, you know, like just 
like the, 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 when you're like, for me, I always put down like all the, all of the, I just make sure all the facts are correct. So I'd always do that first. And it's so kind of, kind of hollows you out. It's just really tedious and really boring kind of, and, um, it's useful. You learned your subjects, but, um, but in that process, it's, it's, um, you can kind of, it's, you have to go away for a few days and then come back and then look at it fresh, I think. And then maybe you'll see what's, what's actually kind of magical about this information. You know? In those moments when you had to say, go away for a few days, what would you do in that time to help recharge yourself so you can come back to the work fresh? Well, I would just try to do something completely different, like, um, like a, not think about it at all. Go, I mean, I would have probably, you know, when I was writing it, I was also working. So I would go, maybe I would go work, you know, do a, a story about whatever, um, something, you know, for some magazine, um, and then just put it away completely and then come back, you know, a couple of days later, I would just try to segment the, the days so that they were completely different. One was purely the book and one was purely maybe a, a magazine story or something. And how do you keep track of that and schedule your days so you can make the most of it when it is say book day versus magazine deadline day? Like, do you have a particular practice so you can keep things straight? Yeah, I just plan it out ahead of time. I just try to, I just try to decide like which days will be which. And I usually I usually change locations. <laughs> like, like I would do, like I would always work. I would go to, um, the Columbia library usually when I would work on the book because it's quiet and, um, you know, I can't get phone calls and stuff. So, and then I would do, and then when I'm writing for you know, doing journalism, it would be, I'd work at home or I'd work at an office or depending on, you know, if I would go into the magazine or whatever, or, um, so that usually like the entire, the whole structure of the day would be different. And I just try to plan one so that the other doesn't interrupt the other, you know, it's just two different ways of, of thinking. So it's usually not too hard to separate them out. <laughs> yeah. And one, one thing that really struck me when I was reading the book was how, um, you know, Rilke, he, at one point, I think it was when he was kind of, he couldn't get a toehold with the right mentor. And so he designed his own syllabus of study which I thought was really brilliant mm -hmm. and it's something that like anyone can do today, sort of like you can make your own MFA if you want, like save the right. money and just go find the people you want to be like and read their shit and, yeah. and study yeah. their stuff. And, and I, I was, but his was, was hilarious yeah. <laughs> because his was like learn Danish and, and, and <laughs> like learn more about the celestial body, like learn more natural history, like learn the origin of stars. <laughs> like it was yeah. so, they were huge. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that so much. And I thought that was like such a great way to sort of seize your own study and be as self-made as you can. And, um, what, so I took, that was uh, something that really stuck, stuck in my head. And I wonder as, as you were doing your research and, as an artist who works in true stories, and these were also artists you were studying in different media, what what did you learn and take away from studying them that maybe you were able to say like, oh, that's cool, I'm going to steal that and apply it to my own work? Uh, certainly, like, I mean, I didn't. What I do like from from what he his his idea was when he was making that syllabus was to to actually not 
not include any literature in it. So it wasn't, it was a syllabus basically to broaden his, his, um, his horizons to, to, to learn other things. So I thought that was actually really useful. So he would, you know, it would be, you know, the closest he would come would be maybe to learn about architecture or something. And I think that's really useful to kind of, you have to, you all the time have to read if you're a writer, but, um, and I all the time I'm looking at art, but I think it's, it's, it was, it's really, I learned a lot about like, um, history and the, you know, when I was working on this about the architecture in Paris and the, and, um, the way the city was constructed and about psychology and the history of how, um, the influence between like philosophy, you know, aesthetic philosophy and psychology and the, and the origins of Darwinism. And these were all like ideas that were, uh, completely relevant to the, to the artistic scene at the time, but you, you, you don't necessarily associate them together now, um, or you wouldn't naturally do it. So I think there was a real, I mean, he was absolutely right that, you know, studying Darwin had everything to do with, or Nietzsche had everything to do with understanding the kind of the literary circles too, because everything's coming out of the same culture. So for me, I also start. I also read a lot of um, Nietzsche and Darwin and and um, the some of the, all the philosophers at the time, because those. I don't think it was just that time period, but these these ideas were all uh, commingling and creating the whole culture that I was trying to write about. So I think it's, I think that's a good, actually a very good lesson. Yeah. And uh, something else in in your book too, you talk a a lot about um, uh, the artists, the female artists in Westhoff, Becker, and their, unfortunately, their fairly tragic lives because at that time, you know, Rodin is saying that women, women in your lives are manipulative and will smother your (laughs) art. And so these women who are very talented in their own right were just, were silenced in a lot of ways and not allowed to express themselves to their fullest potential. And, uh, you know, given your start as, you know, writing for, you know, women's e-news and having that, (laughs) that bent as a journalistic entry into, your, your writing career. Uh, what was it like for you to tell their stories and, you know, in this sort of in this climate too? You know, I I was a little conscious that I was writing a story about two kind of, you know, old dead white men and like at a time when it's, um, you know, not necessarily, I mean, it's, you know, not something that needed to be done necessarily, but, but I, but I mean, it it didn't matter to me. I wanted to do this story, but I think in a way, um, like one of my, a, a, a comment that I get a lot since it came out is that um, is about the women characters and people tell me a lot that they are really happy that they feel like full characters, um, especially Paula and Paula Becker and Clara Vestoff. Um, and that, that's of course makes me very happy um, because I think it was really hard to find information on them. Not, not so much Paula because she's quite celebrated, but um, or also Rodin's wife, um, there was just because they weren't famous, they didn't. There's not a lot written about them, but it was important to me to to make them whole because, you know, as dismissive as Rodin was of women, um, certainly Rilke was not. They were. I mean, his he always was with extremely accomplished women, and he always admired them and looked up to them and sought them as both kind of mentors and lovers. Um, so it didn't seem possible to 
really tell his story without telling his wife's yeah. or, um, or Lou Salome, you know? Um, so it was a lot more work in a way to, cause I had to really dig to find stuff about a lot of them. Um, but I think it's worth it in the end because they do, I hope, um, become real people. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a woman <laughs> or something just kind of naturally inclined to make them human <laughs> in the book. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It was, I mean, it it wasn't was a, conscious. It was a great addition. I, I, those are some of the part, parts of the books that I felt really popped because it, it did, it departed from the, the two main figures and you realize that there were these other influential people and you, you got a sense of, you know, sort of their, their desperation for visibility and artistic fame, but yeah. they were just kind of always in the shadows, unfortunately. It's tragic. Yeah, it's really sad. I mean, they all have kind of sad endings too, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, Paula Becker died tragically young and Camille Claudel ended up in an asylum and Claire Vestoff, you know, got kind of stuck raising the kid and, you know, had a career, but not the one she wanted to have, you know. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it doesn't. Lou Salome, maybe she, maybe she's the kind of one silver lining, you know. Yeah. She, uh, yeah, she, she got to the... swim with Freud and and got yeah. to, <laughs> and all that. And that that's another el- wonderful element of the book too is that like you know Freud kind of plays into this whole thing. Is yeah. that like them and also the women's stories? Were were they were those elements of the book things that surprised you as you dive totally. deeper into the research? Yeah, totally. I had no idea about the connection between Freud and and Rilke. That that was completely. Um, a shock to me and, and, you know, and it, and it's still not even completely confirmed. I mean, there's this, uh, essay that Freud wrote about a walk that he took with his, uh, a poet. And it's assumed by a lot of scholars that that poet was Rilke, though it's not hundred percent confirmed. Um, but I had never, I never knew that. Um, and I knew that this kind of, this sort of nascent, uh, science of the self that was happening at the time was part of Rilke's story because he, he, he wrote about that and he wrote about it in, in, you know, it infused his own work and he himself, um, thought about going into psychoanalysis. Um, I mean, as a, as a, as a patient, not as a doctor. Um, and he, and he, um, he had his dreams analyzed for a while. Uh, so I knew that there was some relationship between the kind of origins of psychology in Rilke's life, but I didn't know that he had such direct contact with Freud and that, you know, and that through, uh, Lou Salome, he would have, you know, he, he kind of rejected, uh, psychoanalysis. He decided he thought it was, it would, you know, this kind of romantic view that if you, uh, that it would, um, if you underwent psychoanalysis, you would, it would cure you of, uh, of both the angels and the demons. So you would, it would, he might become happier, but he would also take away his creative powers. So he didn't, he didn't fully submit to the doctrine, but he, um, was able to take from it here and there through Lou, who was a student of Freud's and also became the analyst of, uh, one of Freud's daughters. So, um, it, you see how it, it plays a lot into Rilke's later life. Hmm. And as you were looking to, as you were crafting the book and even maybe before you got to writing it, did, did you have any example or model books that you were like, okay, that's, I can help, 
you know, I can, this is what I've read and this will help sort of inform the structure and the sort of, uh, this co-biography angle I'm looking for. Were, were there any influential books that, that helped you along the way? Yeah. Well, um, the, the, the co-biography that that I'm trying to think of it. I mean, I must have, I read a lot of biographies. I'm trying to think of what I read. I specifically had like a dual one. I mean, the, though I, I certainly read, um, a lot about Rilke. You know, I read, I read, um, and Rodin, of course, I, I really loved, uh, William Gass's reading Rilke, uh, which is, which I'd actually read long before I started this project. Um, because it's kind of, it's a kind of, it's really a, a, this dance between kind of philosophical musings and a dissection of the ways of trans, like the way different poetry is translated. And he, you know, he lines up different translations side by side and then takes them apart and kind of shows you how they come to be. And, and, and also a kind of close reading of, of Rilke's life kind of told through the through the poetry. And I, I, that book was always, that really stuck with me. Um, I mean, I read it many times. Of course, I read it again when I was working on this project because it had that kind of, that bit of everything in it. So it wasn't like a, you know, it certainly wasn't a, a dual biography, but it showed you how to kind of it, it put together different, all the different elements of a life, the creative part, the critical part of, you know, looking at the work. Um, and then of course, just questioning yourself as an author, you know, his, that whole book is him sort of questioning the, the different problems of translation. And I don't read German. So this is something I was kind of coming against a lot, um, and, and doubting myself and questioning how, how I should approach, um, interpreting certain poems or talking about them. Um, so for me, that book was probably the most important, um, and it's it's the kind of unlikely model. I don't know if I had like a good, I had like a real model. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I, I read. Then you know there were just a lot of you know I really liked. Um, Jeff Dyer had written an, a really nice essay about the two of them, um, about and about Rilke and Rodin, and also about the relationship of kind of I think it's called genius envy. It's about and he looks at other kinds of. Um, joint of figures like this. I can't remember who the other ones are off the top of my head, but um, two people where they kind of two creative, you know, stars that kind of how how they influence each other and how they maybe envy each other and the push and pull between their, their relationships. And that was, I think also uh, important to me at the time. Yeah. And is there a a writer or two out there where you, that you admire to like to the extent that like Rilke admired Rodin and someone that you like just achieved to be or you know, um, achieve to be is a weird way of saying it but someone like <laughs> you aspire, aspire to be I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well god there's a lot of them um it, it, it's so funny because it's like it, I mean in different ways I think a lot of the a lot of the books that I loved before, you know, like certainly, you know, I think William Gass is one of the great thinkers, um, that I loved during these last few years. But before that, I always really liked writers. Um, I think I always liked writers who had really good, um, senses of place. And I always, so I loved like 
Andy Prue or Cormac McCarthy or Michael Gilmore. Um, those are always, they always wrote about kind of landscapes like the one I came from. And I, so I think those oddly enough were the ones that I, I, you know, I wanted to be like, you know, they always, you know, if I read something recently about how, um, if you look at like the subjects that writers are drawn to are often the same subjects that they were um, interested in before they were like 20 years old <laughs> or before they're 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of, and I find myself often, uh, I find that to be true the same, you know, maybe that's why letters to young poet worked for me. <laughs> was such a, was such an important catalyst for this book because I read it at that formative age. Um, and so I think like those writers who come from, places like 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 I did and write about the places like I come from that I'm always drawn to them um so I would say there's three in William Guest <laughs> mm-hmm. what are when you're when you're in that that mode of doing something extensively big as a as the book and um how do you set up your days so you can accomplish the work and I you know you say you like mapped out you know like X day is book day, blah, blah. But um, on a day-to-day basis, how do you set up your day so you feel sort of victorious when the sun goes down? <laughs> well, that's, I don't know. That's a really good day. Um, um, you know, well, I go far away. You know, I go, it's like an hour from where I live. I go far away so that I'm there really for the whole day and there's nothing else to do. And, and then I sit there for like, an hour usually, you know, I, 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 I'm good. Like in the morning, I like to start very early first thing in the morning. Um, and I think clearly I try to write a little bit and then I get tired of writing. And so then I read a little bit or I kind of do research and then, and then I go distract myself by eating something or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's so boring. I don't know if this is, this is like the least interesting thing to talk about in a way, but, uh, the, um, and then, you know, and then I don't, and then, you know, you work a little more. I don't think it's very often that I feel victorious, but unless you've had one of those really great, rare moments of, you know, kind of. Yeah, I guess maybe in lieu of victorious would be like accomplished, you know, like, all right, this yeah. is, you know, um, you know, I hit my word count for the day or page count or. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, maybe a better, a better way to say is like, after you've set up your day, like, how do you measure what it means to have had a good day i think it's like if i had like if, it, if it, you know something a new idea came or I, yeah i don't have like a word count goals really maybe i should but i don't really have that so i kind of you know hopefully i you know move hopefully something moved you know i got from one place to another something was put down and then like some new ideas came about where to go next you know or some like some little offshoots formed that maybe I could explore mm. that I didn't know were going to be there first. So, you know, probably a little combination of that. Just, just, just a little movement I would yeah. say is good. That's an accomplished day. How do you manage uh, distractions or if you're, when you're a little fatigued from maybe the writing or the research and, you know, how do you avoid going down social media rabbit holes and, and stay focused? Do you have any sort of practice you like to employ? That's a real problem for me. And I would love to know advice from you or your other writers on that. Cause I haven't figured that one out yet. 
I'm really bad. I'm, I'm increasingly bad. I don't know. It used to be, I mean, I would say that I guess part of it is I do, I go to the library so that I don't have like domestic distractions. I don't have like, you know, things to clean or, or, you know, laps around my apartment or something, you know, or like doing chores. That's part of it. But then the distractions of the internet are really hard for me because I haven't figured out a way. I don't think I, I haven't figured out a way to work without the internet yet because I do a lot of research on it. Um, and so I, I would like to figure out a way maybe to turn it off and just make notes of things I want to look up later and then turn it back on and look things up and then go back and fill in the blanks, you know, because otherwise the problem is I look things up immediately all the time and then I, I do distract myself and then go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. I think I've heard Neil Strauss talk about a particular app. Oh, maybe it's called free or something. Um, but what it does is you set up say a 90 minute window and it, it will block your computer's capacity to connect to the internet. Yeah. Um, it's something that it's forceful. It's not like you, it's not like just turning your Wi-Fi off. Like it will not let you do it. So as, yeah. so as he's writing, you know, if there's something he needs to check or he'll make a note be like, okay, when I'm back to internet time, this mm-hmm. is what I can look up. So maybe that's, that's something smart. we're looking into. <laughs> yeah. Have you tried that? I have not. Um, but it's, I should try it. Okay, I'll look that up. I need. I definitely. It's time to do something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, serious. <laughs> Very nice. Well, yeah. you know, with Rachel, with respect to your time, I'll let you. I'll let you get going. Um, let me let okay. you get out of here by um just asking where where people can uh, find more about you and your work, and uh, you know, you must change your life and so forth. Oh yeah. Well, um, my website has. Uh, everything on there. It's rachel-corbett.com. And I have like, um, you know, you can, there's reviews and, and events, you know, I do some talks uh, about the book here and there. Um, so there's more information there, I would say, um, is the best place. And then of course you can buy it on Amazon or indie seller, whatever. I think that's the name of the indie book seller online. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah. uh, are you most active on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook? Yeah, I have all of that. Um, I try to be active. I mean, my Instagram is basically just pictures of the art that I see on uh-huh. a weekly basis. <laughs> you know, that's either great or boring, depending on your taste. <laughs> Insta- it, and then, yeah, I'm on Twitter, too. It's um, at Rachel N. Corbett. And so we've come to the end. Big thanks to Rachel Corbett, Rachel N. Corbett on Twitter. If you've made it this far, this is where I will ask you to kindly leave an honest review or rating on iTunes. Ratings take 10 seconds. Reviews take a little bit longer, but here's the thing. If you do that and you show me evidence of it, I will gladly either... Uh, edit a piece of your work of up to 2,000 words or provide you a transcript for any single episode of the podcast. So if you really liked uh, my conversation with Lee Gutkind on, let's see, episode 60, you will get that transcript with hyperlinks and all sorts of goodies in there. Also, I have this really great monthly newsletter that seems to be growing every month. At least the subscription base. The newsletter stays about the same size. It is a little nonfiction digest of uh, books 
that I recommend, as well as some documentary film and radio or podcasts. So uh, it's a it's a great little thing to give you some things to chew on for a month. So it's once a month, no spam, and you can't beat that. That's at brendanomera.com. That's going to do it, friends. Until we do this again next week, have a CNF and great week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>